Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. If your roof starts to leak or your floor's really squeak, you live in a money pit. Money pit. If your basement needs a pump or your place looks like a dump, you live in a money pit. Money pit. Pick up the telephone, fix up your home sweet home. I call it Coast to coast and floorboards to shingles, this is the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. And we are bringing you a very special edition of the Money Pit today. We are on location at the current This Old House project just outside of Boston. You know, the focus this season is on quality at an affordable price, something we'd all like to have a bit more of. Mm -hmm. You know, the economy is really forcing many of us to work with what we have. And so many of you are calling in to ask about cost-effective home improvement projects, or at least looking for a cheap fix for a problem that you really can't afford to completely redo right away. Well, we're all feeling the pinch of a bad economy, and you might be feeling like your home is the last thing that you can afford to spend money on. Absolutely, but remember that your home is likely also to be your biggest investment, and keeping it up will increase its value when the economy does come back. And there are already some signs that at least the housing market is slowly heading into positive territory. Mm, That's right. You know, when Bill and Jillian Pierce bought their home just outside of Boston about five years ago. They were attracted by its old house charm and certainly a great location, but they knew that it would need fixing up eventually. Yeah, and that day is finally here. After years of saving up, they are now looking at the finished product, an addition done by the This Old House team. Here to tell us all about some of the details is This Old House master carpenter and our friend Norm Abram. Hey, Norm, welcome to the program. Well, thanks. It's great to see you guys again. It's nice for us to be up here in your neighborhood this time. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, another beautiful job here. What I was particularly found interesting was as I was uh, earlier today looking at the house on the outside, I was standing out there with Tommy, and I said, where's the addition? Mm -hmm. He says, I love that you asked that question because what you guys did here fits so nicely in with the rest of the house. Right, and, you know, that was the whole plan. This is a small lot. We didn't have a lot of room to expand. The homeowners wanted to keep the budget low. The architect was pretty much given orders to, Mm -hmm. to keep it small. And I remember seeing the first modeling that they did of it, and there were three different stages. And, you know, usually you start out with the obvious, which is pretty ugly, and then the in-between, <laughs> which is sort of acceptable. And then the final one, which, as you said, when you see it finished, it's like, oh, where, what did you do? Yeah, what happened to the old house? Right. Well, and I think in this situation, we're dealing with the Dutch colonial, so you're you're stuck with, I mean, it's a beautiful feature, the gambrel roof. So it's interesting to see how the addition was tackled to create almost a U-shaped of mm-hmm. this gra- gambrel feature that I think is just stunning. Right. And and by, you know, not having them right flush with one mm-hmm. another, bumping one out a little bit further than the other, that also created a transition point, which works very well. It protects that back doorway and it protects the backyard. Yet when you stand back and look at it, you say, this, this really works. Sometimes a symmetrical design like that, you kind of get uncomfortable mm-hmm. with it. But I think this one really works well. 
um, the way it created the new space. You know, so many of us today, Norm, are thinking about ways to find new space, and we can't afford to move, so we want to improve the space that we have, just like you did here. Any tips for trying to uh, go through the options of, of of adding another room in addition to a house? How do you start working towards that plan where it does look like a natural part of the place? Uh, well, I think one of the most important things on that line is to get a good designer, uh, get some architectural help. Uh, a lot of people feel that uh, they can go to a contractor who is going right. to do it all. Well, there are contracting firms that provide design services, and they are qualified architects or architectural designers. What you don't want to do is go to a, a builder who just claims to be a designer because right. it really takes skill to add on to a house and make it feel like it was always there. Mm -hmm. You don't want it to look like a wart that was added on to. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and that's the trick. And we've always uh, been an advocate of that over the years. I, I'm sure you've seen as many as I have. You see a beautiful grand house and then some box that's attached oh, to the back of it. You mm -hmm. don't want to It do looks that. like it didn't fit. So Odd that's the deciding things yeah. that just don't match. Right. That's the first step. And I think today, I think people don't think big necessarily. Think function. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't need big to function well. And uh, that's what's showing up in this house. By re in one section of the house, we didn't add a single square foot of new space, but we eliminated a stair that wasn't being used. We took out a bathroom and a back hallway that wasn't functioning very well and literally doubled the space of the kitchen. That's very economical when you oh, come right down to it. Oh, interesting. So the extension really is just that family the, room and the room above it and the staircase. Uh, that's correct. The staircase to the basement. Because there used to be a little back stairwell that went up in, in these that uh, actually Jillian was using it as a storage closet. The, the, <laughs> the top had been closed in and she had pots and pans down the steps. Well, I think it's fair to say that today design is more important than ever before mm -hmm. because, you know, it's not like we have huge houses and huge lots where we can slap another chunk of the house on and mm -hmm. it looks okay. You have small lots. You have small houses. I mean, small is the new big. And if it's designed well and if it's made very functional, then it can really serve its purpose. Norm Abram from This Old House, can you stay around a little bit? We're going to take sure. a short break and we'll uh, get to some more questions in just a bit. You're listening to the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show on air and online at moneypit.com. We are coming to you from the set of season 30's This Old House program. Wow, 30 right? seasons of This Old House. We're going to have more with Norm, and later we're going to take your calls to 1-888-MONEYPIT. Do you want to know, for example, where to spend your home improvement dollars? Or maybe you've got an old house that's turning into a real-life Money Pit. We are in the Money Pit Prevention business. Call us right now. We'll help you out. The number is 1-888-MONEYPIT. You live in a body pit. The Money Pit is brought to you by Generac and the Generac Automatic Standby Generator. Be protected and never worry about power outages again. Visit your favorite home improvement center or call 888-GENERAC or visit generac.com. Your home will stay on the next time the power goes out. Now, here are Tom and Leslie. Making good homes better. Welcome back to the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show, where home solutions live. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. And we're talking about old houses this hour, but your house doesn't have to be ancient to have some issues. For example, you know, there's a common type of wiring used in the 60s that was made of aluminum, and today that's considered a fire hazard and something that needs to be upgraded. Learn more about the construction duds over the decades at moneypit.com. Just search home repairs by age of house. 
And you're going to find out a lot of things that need to be done around your money. We'll be making your to-do list up for the weekend for sure. (laughs) All right. Well, the Money Pit is coming to you today from Newton Center, Massachusetts. And that's the site of the current This Old House project. Now, it's the 30th anniversary season for the show. And our guest has been with the show for each and every project over these last three decades. So we're honored to welcome once again, Norm Abram. Hi, Norm. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Who doesn't look a day over 29? <laughs> <laughs> Norm, uh, you've just passed a milestone here with the new Yankee Workshop. I want to ask you about that. Uh, you're going to be uh, you're going to be hanging up the uh, the Jorgensen clamps there for a while, huh? Well, you know, I'll still be doing it aside. I mean, we basically completed the mission we set out to do in 1988. Wow. Um, if you think about where we started, we were talking about uh, four years worth of, four seasons worth of programming. Right. We did 20. Right. <laughs> and then we were lucky enough to take a couple seasons and tweak them a little bit and run them this current year. Um, but, you know, we're still keeping our website active. There's a lot of shows that we know people still want to see that they can't get on television. Mm-hmm. We're going to we're now thinking about putting streaming video on mm-hmm. our website so people can get those. We've pretty much converted our entire library over to DVD. So every project plan and DVD will be available, and and we'll see what else we can develop over the web. So but, you don't have to change the name to the old Yankee Workshop. No. no. <laughs> uh, we're still out there, you know, and um, I'm working with Russ, and uh, we hope that uh, we can keep that going for a while. And, of course, I'm still here at this old house. Yeah, and let's talk about some of the work you did here at the Newton Center House. I imagine you had your hands on the trim. Well, I worked a little bit in the library with Tom, and it was nice. Well, we did a few scenes together this season. We started out with some heavy-duty demo, which is... Always, always fun, fun. Right? you know. Always fun to do that. It's real man work. Uh, get get the frustration <laughs> out, and uh, and we did some framing. We framed up uh, the floor of what is now the new family room, and uh, did some window trim detailing. Uh, put a door in. Showed people how to put an entrance door in. And now that's interesting. You mentioned entrance door because the uh, cost versus value survey numbers just came out, which shows what the best remodeling investments are, and entry doors was the number one best investment that you could make, that investment in curb appeal. And they looked at steel, fiberglass, and very upgraded, and they all looked very, very good as a good return on investment. Mm-hmm. Well, you got to realize that's how everyone enters the house, your mm-hmm. guests, your family. And, uh, I mean, there's, to me, there's two functions of an entry door. Uh, you want something that's appealing. You want something that's secure and, and energy efficient. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, it doesn't have to be overly fancy, but that is that gives you a real feeling of what you're going to see when you open it. Mm-hmm. You know, the the characteristics of that and the condition that it's in, I think, sends a signal as to what's on the other side of well, that door. Well, and considering what home improvement projects are right. concerned, it's very on the minimal end compared right. to other things. And it's not that difficult to do. I mean, Kevin and I put it in and we tried to go through every step. You know, here's your opening. Here's how you seal it. Here's how it goes in. Here's how you plumb it. Make sure it's square and it's going to work properly. And I do have to say, I know you mentioned the library. That library on the stair landing, what a clever use of space. Yeah. The window is fantastic. I love all the nooks and crannies. It really is a beautiful area. I right. think the nooks and crannies are an important place that people overlook in a lot of their homes. There's a lot of space mm-hmm. that can be used if you fill it in. I mean, in my office, there was a staircase that came down from the upstairs. And underneath that staircase, I've got some nice pyramid-shaped doors mm-hmm. there that take use of all of that space. Yeah. 
Yeah, there are a lot of hidden nooks and crannies. And in a house like this, um, or a Cape Cod-style house, we have second-floor space with knee walls that are just closed off. Uh, and often you'll see them used as extra storage. You can mm-hmm. put a couple panels in there. also allows you, if you're upgrading mechanical systems, it gives you a space to run some of your mechanical systems through. Terrific. Norm Abrams, 30 years on this old house, 20 years on the new Yankee Workshop. Congratulations on all your success, and thanks so much for stopping by the Money Pit. Oh, thank you, Tom and Leslie. It was great to be with you again. You are tuned to the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show on air and online at moneypit.com. The number is one eight eight eight. Money Pit. Leslie, who's next? All right. Now we've got Judy in California. Welcome, Judy. Thank you. I guess I have two questions. I have an old tin ceiling in my house that has several layers of paint. Um, First of all, I'd like to find out if there's lead in that paint and how would I find that out? And secondly, I'd like to find out how to strip it to get it as close to its original patina as possible. Well, you know, you're right to be concerned about the lead paint issues. And, you know, chances are if that's some of the original paint that was put on when there's the original... There's most likely some yeah, in there. There's definitely most likely. I mean, there's a test that you can do. There's there's both the opportunity to do actually a, a sample of the chip of the paint. You now, but a chip of the paint, you're really going to have to get off a solid you chip go, down to the yeah, tin. you got to go down to you hear to see metal. Okay. And there's another uh, less destructive test called an XRF or an X-ray fluorescence test. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a meter that a lead tester has. It's pretty expensive equipment, so it's not like you can rent this Right, thing. but you've got to get a pro either yeah. bring the tin ceiling tile to them or right. they come to you. And it's a portable gun-like device and you hold it up and then it will actually tell you what the lead mm-hmm. content is. But you're right to be concerned. So I would suggest that if you're thinking about pulling all this lead paint off, I mean, it could be quite dangerous for the people in the house, especially if you try to burn it off or mm-hmm. chips get around. If kids pick them up, it's not a good thing. So be very, very careful. Get it tested either with a destructive test where you take a sample of it or with an XRF test and you'll know what you're dealing mm-hmm. with. All right. Now we've got Mike in Georgia who's doing some work to his 1920s home. Hey, Mike, how can we help you? Hey, I got a home I just recently bought. It's about 1920s vintage. And the previous owner redid the bathroom, and I do not like it. And what I'm looking for is a like a clawfoot bathtub that would actually fit the decor of the house. Where would I find one, and where would I even start to look for one? You know, Mike, I think you're about to embark on a super fun adventure. Absolutely. There are lots of places, and a good place to start looking is your yellow pages or a simple web search. You want to search for an architectural salvage yard right. in your area. You might have to take a journey somewhere. It could be a good hour's drive. But you will find a treasure trove of things that are essentially salvaged from construction right. sites, from molding, trim details, sinks, faucets, fixtures everything. I mean, it's a beautiful adventure. And you know what's fun about that is fixtures. They work with modern day plumbing Mm. faucets and, you know, plumbing and that sort of thing. I mean, it works with everything that you can buy over the counter right now. There's nothing special about it. But the one thing that you are going to have to do with a claw foot tub is you're going to have to have it resurfaced. You're going to have to have it reglazed. And that's definitely something that you want to do professionally. Mm -hmm. And you know what? If you actually want something new that perhaps has never been bathed in, head on over to VanDykesRestorers.com. They have a beautiful... Beautiful replica there. You'll find something you like. Good tip. All right, up next we've got Jim calling in from Ohio with another old house question. Welcome, Jim. Thanks. I've got a 70-year-old vinyl linoleum-type floor, and uh, I'm trying to peel it up and put some tile down. However, uh, 
not all of it's coming up. And I was just wondering, is there anything I can do to level the floor uh, before I put the tile down? You know, Jim, my question why you wanted to even take this up, because when you have a really hard floor to remove, sometimes you're better off going over mm-hmm. it. For example, instant you, subfloor. Instant subfloor. You can do it with laminate, for example, mm-hmm. which doesn't need any attachment to the floor itself. Now, but because he's looking at tile, is it essential to get that up to get a base or get down to the concrete, whatever is below this, so that you have a good foundation to put down your adhesive? Yeah, he's definitely going to have to get up as much as he can. And i got to tell you, Jim, there's no easy solution here. It's the, you have to really do it the hard way. If you're having trouble getting it up, you've got to get down there with some wide floor chisels. Those are very, very mm-hmm. handle, handy for lifting up And they do pieces. have them with like three, four-foot handles that you can really get underneath and, and you lift. Get some, yeah, you can get some, uh, some force behind it that mm-hmm. way. It's a little bit easier on your back. And you know what, Jim? The important thing in creating a smooth floor is that if you do not have an even smooth subfloor and there's any movement at all, once you put your tile down, those tiles are going to crack and you're going to be back at square one. So definitely get that as smooth and even as you can. All right, next up we've got Tiffany in Missouri. Welcome, Tiffany. Thanks. I have a 1940s cottage that has some old carpet glued over laminate floor, and I was wondering how to remove them both so that I can install some tile. Wow, that's kind of weird. Crazy. But it's good news because the laminate floor would not have been attached to the subfloor under that. So right. Yeah, it depends on whether or not you're trying to save the laminate. If it's been glued down, I think that we're, we can't even have that discussion. Mm-hmm. Not possible to save it. But what you could do is pull up the carpet as, much, as best you can and then cut through the laminate floor. And, Tiffany, if you set the depth of your circular saw at about three-eighths of an inch, you should be able to get just enough of that cut to start lifting it up. And it'll probably come apart like mm-hmm. a puzzle piece because that's the way it Would went you down. go, say it's like a planking laminate as in like a wood look, would you go across the joint lines, if you will, or go along the joinery lines? Well, if you can see the joints, it's not a bad idea because mm-hmm. once you get a couple of those up... I think you're going to be able to literally break this apart because those laminate floors usually lock together unless it's really old and it was glued together. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, well, you know, then you're just going to have to cut it up completely. But you can do it. And, you know, underneath, you ought to have a nice, clean, flat surface to start Mm -hmm. with. Which would be great and exactly what you're looking for on a tile project. Exactly. All right. Now we've got John from Pennsylvania. John, welcome to the Money Pit. Thanks. I have a 120-year-old house with bulkhead basement doors that are in really bad shape. And I was just wondering what kind of door I could get that will last and will also remain true to the time period of the house. Well, John, 120 years ago, we didn't have steel basement doors. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what you had was basically wood basement mm-hmm. doors. And while that would be incredibly attractive and not probably very do practical. a good job. Not practical, not energy efficient, and probably will be your regular weekend maintenance project <laughs> forever and a day. So I think that that's something you might want to rethink. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, even you can look at something that has that similar design and style that would be fiberglass mm-hmm. that could replicate that look of the period of feel of the house. You know, is um, is it Coldplay? Cold, cold, 
Coldplay. I always think it's Coldplay That's when the I band. see. No, when I see their signs <laughs> at the trade shows. But Clopay. Clopay. They make right. garage doors and they also make bulkhead doors right. out of wood, out of fiberglass, and they truly have wonderful, you know, carriage house style doors that really replicate the period of the house. Now, I would start there. And now, if you were a Coldplay fan, which I am, you could play your Coldplay while yes. you install your Clopay. <laughs> and I'm such a dum dum. Every time we're at a trade show and I see the big Clopay. Clopay signage above the show floor. <laughs> I'm like, Coldplay's here. Oh, Clopay. So I always have to think twice as I say it. You are tuned to the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show on air and online and on location mm-hmm. today with the team from this old house in Newton, Massachusetts. The number is one eight 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 Money Pit. The website is MoneyPit.com. Up next, we're going to talk about doing more with less. Are this old house homeowners had to do that in this specific renovation? And they learned some really good lessons that we're going to share with you on how you can do the same with the same amazing results. We're going to have some tips for you when we come back. This is the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show on air and online at MoneyPit.com. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. We're doing a very special show today on the set of the 30th anniversary season of This Old House. It's a 1915 Dutch colonial revival just outside of Boston. That's right. And you know what? When it comes to home improvements, the homeowners here are dealing with what everybody is facing these days, a small budget for a fairly big problem. Well, the solution was a modest addition that paved the way for a new kitchen, family room, and office slash guest room in just 330 square feet. And the man that was in charge of designing that addition is standing here with us right now. It's Paul Rovinelli, the architect on the project. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much and for having me. congratulations. What and a you, beautiful job. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. You know, I paid you the ultimate compliment when I first got here because I asked Tom Silva, where's the addition? Oh, that's a really good thing to hear. <laughs> it's yeah. beautiful. Because that's a lot of the challenge with a project like this is to try to blend it in and make it feel seamless, even though we're trying to do things that are very different from the original house. Mm-hmm. I think one of the areas, you know, having lived in a Dutch colonial myself currently, the roof line. Yeah. What an unusual challenge to create something beautiful that looks like it belongs with that gambrel detail. They, How did you address that? Well, they're just about impossible to add to. I mean, because the whole roof is really meant to stay as a unit. It's right. really mm-hmm. meant to stay as as is. And there's not much you can do except extending toward the ends, and that makes them look kind of long and funny. So it really takes a lot of study to figure out how to bring this massing in and how to relate it to the roof, but how to slip it in there so that it doesn't overwhelm the original character of the Mm -hmm. house. And a lot of folks are doing this right now, Paul. They're trying to do more additions than ever before because it hasn't been really cost-effective to move. As you're looking at a house and trying to figure out how to add some space on, what are some tricks of the trade for uh, trying to decide which the best place is to really uh, pick up that extra square footage? Well, I think you want to look at the the land you've got available and see what's available and where you can extend and, and how that's going to work the best. But I think you want to try to maximize the square footage that you've got. Look at Take a look at what you've already have and how how can that be made more efficient? Because often we can do a lot of things within the footprint of the existing building. And if you're trying to save some money, is to minimize the extension that you're adding on. And that's very much what we did here, partly because we were constrained by zoning, but also by budget. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul, I think it's so interesting. We get so many calls on the money pit from 
people who want to do an extension or an addition and their first instinct is to call three contractors. Yeah. And we're always telling them, no, stop, go find an architect. an architect. Well, I, you know what I always say about these kind of jobs is that people would have taken these jobs away from architects if they could have, you know, and if mm-hmm. there was a good way to do this without having to pay somebody to design it, certainly mm-hmm. people would try to do it. The reason it doesn't disappear as work for architects is because it's very difficult design challenge. It you is. Know? Mm-hmm. And a lot of old houses to make something and to to grow the house and make it more substantial without destroying the character of the original house is not an easy problem. It's a lot easier in a lot of ways to build a new house, design a new house, than it is to add on to an existing one. And, and also, it takes some design ability. And also, Paul, you know, when you bring in three contractors, you get three different sets of specs. And when you, you work with an architect... You get those specs that you can have everyone bid against. You truly have an apples-to-apples comparison. So there's a consumerism side of this, too. Absolutely. Sometimes what I'll tell people is that if you, if you, if you talk to contractors before you've really got some drawings and some, and some hard-line specs and really know what you're going to do, it's almost like looking at somebody with a little bubble above their head. Each mm-hmm. contractor has their own bubble. They're seeing something different in each of those, those, uh, those, those uh, heads, and you can't really compare them until you've got something mm-hmm. hard to go by. And maybe you've mentioned one idea to one contractor and a different idea to the other Absolutely. one and you forget that you've even said that. And standing in front of somebody's house, everybody can imagine whatever, you know, but once it begins to get drawn, then people can really put real prices to it. And and there's no doubt about it that if you're trying to control your costs before you start a project, the more documentation, the better drawings, the better specs that you have, you have a much, much better chance of getting competitive bids and, and, a, and a, a contract price that really is going to hold to the project. And the addition that you've drawn has now come to fruition. It's a beautiful project. Congratulations, Paul Rovinelli, the architect on the This Old House project in Newton Center in Massachusetts. Thanks so much for stopping by the Money Thank Pit. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. You are tuned to the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show on air and online at moneypit.com and today on location with the team of This Old House. That's right. And this is always a very exciting time of year because the latest cost versus value report by Remodeling Magazine is out and they have found that seven out of the top 10 most value yielding projects involved outside home improvements. Yes, Virginia. Curb appeal (laughs) is king. We're going to talk to landscaping expert Roger Cook about how you can achieve that in your house next. Money Pit. Welcome back to the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show, making good homes better. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. And we are on the set of This Old House, just outside of their home turf in Boston, where the cast and crew are wrapping up production on the latest project. And you know, like most of you, the homeowners this time around are watching every penny. The economy is still in a bit of turmoil, and we're all afraid to spend too much. So the result for this project, not a complete gut and redo like this old house team does mm-hmm. on a regular basis, but a 330-square-foot addition to a 1915 home that is just big enough to accommodate this family. And, man, did they get a lot in here. Yeah, it really looks beautiful. Well, if you're on a budget, what's the one place that you can spend money and be sure that you're going to see a good return on your investment? Well, it's your home's exterior. In fact, curb appeal is king like never before. And you don't have to spend a lot to see a really big difference. Here to talk about that is this old house landscaping contractor, Roger Cook. Welcome, Roger. Good morning. How are you? We're well, thanks. And it's a it's a great day here. It's the last day of the build of this Newton Center house. And I noticed your handiwork outside. Lots of green grass going down on a chilly day. 
It's always great to put down sod. I look like a hero. <laughs> you do. Tommy Bus is bum here for six months, and yeah. I come in and one day roll out the grass, and everyone yeah. goes, oh, it, it looks, looks so great. Nice. <laughs> I'll and take it. You take all the credit, right? Yeah. Well, curb appeal is so important right now. We're trying to maintain the value of our house. Uh, you don't have to spend a lot. Where do you think people should begin? Um, design is important, number one, knowing what the plant material is, what it's going to grow to be. The biggest problem we have in landscaping is we overplant. Right. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to put in these jumbo plants, and then three years later, they're touching each other. You don't know how to prune them, or you've got to move them and everything else. Plants are an investment. You can buy small plants, and they will grow very quickly into nice specimen plants, so you don't have to spend all the money up front. I always feel that way when we plant our garden every year. When you first plant it, it just looks so looks lonely, sparse. so sparse, and you know, within a couple of months, you can't even step foot in it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same thing with the landscaping, depending on the type of plants you grow. There's plants that grow at all different rates. There's some that are like teenagers. They grow up overnight. There's some that are slow and steady. And there's some like dwarfs, which grow very, very slowly. So you can mix them together so you don't have a whole bunch of plants on top of each other. Is it really smart to, I mean, say you've got a specimen that you love and you want to plant it in your yard, but it's really not right for the zone or for your area. So is it smart to sort of stick with things that are local to your area in the country? Or can you sort of splurge and put in something that's a little bit fancy and exotic? You can. A lot of people do it in different ways. One way is to put it in a container. I know people who have a palm tree that they put out all summer long, and then they have a greenhouse they put it in for the winter because they love the palm. To me, that's way too much work for me. Mm -hmm. I'd rather invest in a plant that gives me grows over time, fits the location. The other problem we have is that sometimes you can plant these marginal plants and two or three winters will go by and it won't be bad, but then you get a winter that's like that minus 10, pop, that plant dies to the ground. So all those years and time you've invested in that plant are gone. So that's why I'd rather make sure you have a plant that's right for the zone you're, you're planting in. And you need to find that out. And the local nursery uh, is a, probably a really good place to start that. But basically, you really need to do your research here and make the right decision up front because you're going to live with that for a long time. It's an investment. You know, um, the great and a thing, big a, investment. A big investment. It can be a lot of money. Not only money, but your time because most people are doing the landscaping themselves. And our time is yeah. so And let me ask short. you about that. Is maintenance uh, an issue here? Are there, is there such a thing as low-maintenance landscaping? There is low maintenance mansing, but everyone thinks that means it's called stone. Yeah, doing nothing. <laughs> that, that's astroturf and right. asphalt, and there you go. You, got to, you know, the ultimate low maintenance is to pay someone to cut it, someone to fertilize it, and someone to prune it. That's the ultimate low maintenance. You're not doing anything but writing high expense. A check. High expense, but low maintenance. Right. The other is when you buy plants that fit the area, you do proper soil preparation for both the plants and the lawn. You'll have plants in a lawn that will survive, grow without a lot of fertilizer, a lot of water, and then that cuts and down. And does the that mean turn over the soil? Yeah, what does soil at, preparation like, what does that mean? mean? Soil preparation is, is, involves probably two or three steps. The first is turning over the okay. soil. Our soil is notoriously compact, especially on a job site like this where everyone's been running around. Right. So we use both a, a hand fork and a rototiller to turn things over. The second thing is to amend the soil. Usually our soils are really heavy, clay. So if they're clay, I'll add sand and compost and break them up. If it's just sand, I'll add compost to help hold water. Mm-hmm. So I'm making a bed of what the plant likes to grow in uh, so that the more it grows, the faster it grows, the better off it is. Mm-hmm. 
The other thing is making the plant feel like it's at home, and that's mulching after you're done. Mulch keeps the weeds down, keeps moisture in the soil, and helps plants grow. And mulch is something that you want to reapply in the winter to sort of keep things warm or leave what's there? I mean, leave, what's, leave what's there. There's, mulch is this great magical thing that no one seems to know what mm-hmm. it's all about. Mulch is a blanket that's going to help keep the water uh, in the soil, right. mm-hmm. it's going to moderate temperatures, right. and it's going to stop weeds from growing. Mm-hmm. The problem is mulch should only be two or three inches thick. Over the years, we keep adding mulch, mm-hmm. one inch, right. two inches. You've got to take it away. You've got to take it away. Right. Every two or three years, we go through all our clients' property. Right down the dirt. all the mulch down, back down to the dirt, right. and that's a great time to fertilize because the soil's over. Then we put on a light layer of mulch, right. and we start all over again. What kind of mulch do you like? We're hearing a lot these days about artillery fungus, and a lot of it's been blamed as being uh, contained inside mulch, especially shredded mulch. Again, I, the, the mystery of mulch. Right now... <laughs> We have so Only many. Roger could tell a story <laughs> that begins with the mystery, mystery of mulch. <laughs> there are so many different times of mulch right now, from rubber tires ground up right. to stone. There are a lot of dyed mulches mm-hmm. on the market. And the thing you have to watch out, watch out any dyed mulch, I found it can be made out of construction debris. And in the right. construction yeah, debris can be pressure-treated wood. Wow. Uh, Coffee paint, cups. Painted stuff, <laughs> ground up. I mean, you could right. get lead in the mm-hmm. paint and everything else. I prefer, and it's strictly organic, is shredded bark off a tree. A log goes to the mill. Well, they got to get the bark off it before they cut it Mm -hmm. in the boards, so they spin it, and they have a sharp pointed object that goes up against it, and it peels off. It's like a big lathe. There you go. Then they grind it. Okay. That's the stuff you want. Natural, organic, not not stuff that uh, I prefer brown or right. black mulch. I like the black one. A lot of people like red mulch. Well, the secret to red mulch is, is it started out to be cedar in hemlock. Some guy was cutting down a bunch of hemlock, and when he took the bark off, it was red. And someone said, oh, that looks great. So they started selling it for a premium mm-hmm. to homeowners. It doesn't look natural. It fades very quickly. Mm-hmm. There's not enough hemlock and cedar to keep up that supply. So it's died. So it's died. Talking to Roger Cook, the landscape contractor on this old house. Roger, before we let you go, we're heading into the start of winter here. What should people be doing with their plants right now? The biggest problem we've been having is snow load. Snow coming last winter, we had a bad winter with the snow we had. Right. And a lot of plants got crushed underneath the snow. So, in fact, for Ask This House next week, I am going to go out and we're going to build some teepees over plants out of 2 by 4s and plywood so that when the snow comes down, it's just shed to the side and it doesn't crush the plant. Yeah. <laughs> well, all right, Roger Cook, thank you so much for teaching us about camping with your plants in the winter season. <laughs> no, but I totally agree with you. If you have an investment piece and it's something that's a lot of money, do everything that you can to protect it. And thank you so much for joining us at the Money Pit. Oh, you're welcome. It was a thrill. You are tuned to the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show on air and online at moneypit.com. Up next, Old houses have their own special set of concerns, and dangerous asbestos is certainly one of those. But if you find asbestos insulation, do you always have to remove it? Well, maybe not. Find out why after this. You're in a money pit. Making good homes better. Welcome back to the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Coming to you today from the Boston suburbs, the site of the home this old house took on for the show's 30th anniversary season. 
You know, stretching your home improvement dollar is what it's all about on today's show. And in a tight economy, home improvements often take a back seat, which is not always a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you've heard the saying, a stitch in time saves nine. Well, along that sense, it's absolutely better to tackle what you can now in your home because your investment in maintaining your house will always pay off by keeping up your home's value. And this house is a great example. We saw how even a modest change can make a huge difference, as the homeowners will certainly attest. It was a 330-square-foot addition that gave them a new kitchen, family room, office, and a guest room. You can see the finished product and the entire process step-by-step on this old house. Check your local PBS listings to find out when the show airs in your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And you know what? When you head on over to the PBS website and look up this old house, take a minute to read the homeowner's blog. They really tell you a lot of fun, interesting stories that you don't get to see in the process of the program. So take some time because it's always a good read. And while you are online, head over to moneypit.com. You can email us your questions. And we've got some old house questions here today. All right. We've got Mary in Washington, D.C. writes, I have an older house with steam heat and asbestos insulation on the pipes in the dirt basement. We really don't use this area that much. So I'm wondering if I really have to have this asbestos removed. And that is an excellent question because, you know, the process of removing the asbestos is... It's more disruptive, is correct? very disruptive. And if the asbestos is in good condition, and mm-hmm. that means it's not flaking, it's not deteriorating. And, and when it's the insulation, it's is it wrapped in like a paper or a fabric? Well, there's, there's actually two types of asbestos. There's sort of a wet pack that's like a plaster that's mm-hmm. used on the elbows. And then there's something called air cell asbestos, which kind of looks like corrugated cardboard gotcha. that's used on the pipes. Now, if you look at that and it's fairly intact, it's not deteriorating, flaking, off and it's in an area that you're not going to use. Now in this case it's a dirt basement and if it's in good shape I would leave it alone Mary. Mm-hmm. I would not change that. Now on the flip side this turns out to be your kid's playroom and there's bouncing balls smacking on mm-hmm. pipes then you know Knocking not such the a good asbestos I- loose. Right not such a good idea. If you ever do decide to replace it though do not do this project yourself. It's right. absolutely not a DIY job because asbestos fibers are actually thinner than smoke. And you can release them in the air at eight feet, and it would take eight hours for them to hit the ground. All right, next up, we've got Robert from California who writes, we have plaster and lath walls in our 100-year-old home, and they're cracking badly. What is the easiest and most cost-effective repair without tearing them down? You know, I've kind of gone both ways on this. As you know, my house was built in 1886, and when we first took it on, we had to do quite a bit of renovation. Mm -hmm. And so when we did the kitchen, the dining room, and the living room, we actually did a gut job. Got rid of all the plaster. Got rid of all the plaster, took it all down, and then put drywall up. And what you find when you do that is, obviously, it's an incredible mess. But the other thing is that the studs behind it are not flat enough really by themselves oh, true. to truly support drywall and have it look good. They end up being kind of warpy and so you end up having to build them up. sister Joyce to the existing Sometimes. Joyce? I mean, once in a while you get one that's really crazy and you have to do that. But think about it. How do they put plaster walls up? Well, they put wood lath and they put wet plaster. So it really didn't matter mm-hmm. if the studs were straight or not. So I think today I'm of the mind that unless you have to insulate or run plumbing or electrical and you can't do it any other way, you're probably better off going on top of the plaster with a piece of drywall. So mm-hmm. skinning it, you lose just a tiny bit of room space. Where do you then screw the drywall into? Any of the wood lath that's behind the plaster? Actually, or? the wood lath will hold it, Leslie, or you know, you can find the studs with a deep stud finder. Mm-hmm. 
All right, excellent. Well, you've been listening to the Money Pit Home Improvement Radio Show about all the time we have. We're coming to you live from the set of This Old House, Season 30, just outside of Boston. Be sure to check local PBS listings for This Old House and Ask This Old House. The show continues online at MoneyPit.com. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Remember, you can do it yourself. But you don't have to do it alone. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.